We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. In 1918, an Austrian pediatrician named Ernst Morrow discovered that whenever you place an infant on a pillow and simultaneously tap both ends of the pillow, the infant rapidly extends both arms out and back in. And he realized that whenever an infant experiences a sudden loss of stability or balance, it has the instinctive reflex of responding by symmetrically abducting both arms and adducting both arms. And this is called the Moro reflex, named after the doctor. And it's in, the Moro reflex is an infantile response to a sudden loss of support or stability. And this infantile response usually disappears around three to six years of age. Uh, however, some qualitative research has shown that some infantile responses do not wane with age, but persist through adolescence and even into adulthood. What infantile responses am I referring? Have you ever been to a youth league sports game and seen two parents from the opposing team nearly duke it out? I have. It's an infantile response. Ever seen anybody exchange blows over who's better? Kobe or Jordan? I have. It's an infantile response. Ever seen two women fighting like she-wolves over a bouquet of flowers? I have. It's funny, and an infantile response. You ever seen two men scrimmaging over a seat in church? I have, infantile response. Have you ever been honked at in your car and responded like a man-child? I do. Some infantile responses never wane with age, and we are all culpable of them, and we are all capable of doing them. And it's a fleshly instinct that's deep within the veins of our fallenness. But as Christians, our instinctive re reflex should be more than an infantile response to those who oppose us. As Christians, how would God prefer us to respond instinctively to those situations. As followers of Christ, how is it that we should respond to a world that rejects him and opposes us? Well, there are a lot of ways we can answer that question, but today we're gonna see a facet for how we should instinctively respond to those who oppose us. Out of Psalm 123, so please, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Psalm 123, and we're going to get a glimpse of a Christ-like attribute for how the people of God are to respond instinctively to those who oppose them. And I'm just going to read this text again. It's only four verses, and in case uh, Charles read it wrong. <laughs> to thee I lift my eyes, O thou who art enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shall be gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. 
And so, as we move through this text, I have an outline that should be on a screen behind us. And if you got the sermon notes, you already have the outline, and you can just make additional notes to that and take those sermon notes and immediately, immediately go and teach and disciple somebody else. Um, but here's a, an outline. I've kind of updated it since this one, but it's something like this. To whom we look, how we look, what we need, and why we need it. So if you want, you can just take a picture of that, but this will kind of help us navigate through Psalm 123. To whom we look, how we look, what we need, and why we need it. So to whom we look, Psalm 123, a song of ascents. If you look at your scripture, you'll see a song of ascents. That's not just a subtitle. That's actually part of verse one in the Hebrew manuscript. And so it's inspired text. And so ascent, a song of ascent, to ascend literally means to go up. And so there is a collection in your Psalter, verse, Psalms 120 to 134, that are referred to as the songs of ascent. And these songs are a collection that the Jews would read as they progressively moved to the temple of God to worship God and to be with his people. So during various feasts, during various festivals, they would take this collection and sing them as they progressively pilgrim, pilgrimaged to the temple of God. And um, so whenever you read a song of a, of a sense, there's something significant to it. It's about being with God. It's about being obedient to God and being with the faithful of God, the community of God. And that will be important because we'll come back around to it later. There will be a quiz, all right? And I want somebody to remember it because I know second service, as Tom often says, is way better than first service, all right? So there'll be a quiz about that at the end. Verse one, to thee I lift my eyes. Now, if you noticed, I'm using a different translation here. I'm using a 1977 New American Standard, which retained thee and thou only when re referring to deity. And that is excellent because it brings clarity to the English text. Whenever you read thee, you immediately know that God is the object of the sentence receiving the action of the verb. Whenever you read thou, you immediately know God is the subject of the sentence doing the action of the main verb. And so in this first clause in verse one, to thee I lift my eyes, who is the subject? The psalmist, to thee I lift my eyes. So the psalmist is the subject in this first clause. And what is the action of the psalmist here in verse one? He's lifting his eyes. That is the verb, that is the action of this man of God. And what is the object of his action? To thee, God. And so from the get-go, we immediately see that God is the object of his vision. He is turning away from the world around him to cast his gaze upon God. It's the first thing we're told. And notice something about the one to whom he turns. O thou who art enthroned in the heavens. Tell me something, was there a shift in subject? Yes, thou, God. God is now the subject in clause two. And with a change in subject, we should expect an additional action. What is the action of God? He's enthroned. Now, who sits on a throne? King, a sovereign. 
And where is the location of God's throne? The heavens. Notice heavens is plural. Shamim. Anytime you see im at the end of, your, of a word in your English, it usually means plural. Seraphim is a plural word for angels. And this plural form of heavens means that this is the heavens of the heavens, the highest of heavens. So this is God's palace. And immediately what we're just making a simple observation here is that the psalmist's first action, his instinctive action is to lift his eyes to God who is enthroned. He is instinctively looking to his sovereign God, the creator of all the universe, the ruler of all creation. There's no possibility of making a higher appeal than the one who rules from the heavens of heavens of heavens of heavens of heavens. He is the highest of all. This is the object of his gaze. When my children are just learning to walk, we'll often go and sit on our stoop and let them explore in our yard. And as soon as they hear an unfamiliar noise apart from mom and dad for the first time, the sound of a loud truck, the sound of an airplane, the ubiquitous Denton train, they will, their desire to explore and to play is immediately overridden by their instinct for safety. And they will immediately go from gazing at one thing to changing the object of their gaze by instinct to something else, mom and dad. This is the instinctive reaction of the psalmist. This is his spiritual moral reflex. It's the first thing we're told in verse one is that he lifts his eyes to the sovereign God of all creation. And so the point is that there is no one higher, there is no one more majestic, there is no one more mighty or more exalted than the God to whom we turn. He is the monarch of monarchs. This is our God. This is the one to whom we look. Amen? And in verse two, we are shown how it is we look to our sovereign God. In verse two, we get an illustration for how the people of God look to God. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid, the implication is look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord. First notice how this illustration depicts a certain type of relationship. You have servant, master, maid, mistress. And so by the psalmist's own admission, there is a willing recognition of inferior to superior. So we see here there's a, a place of humility where the creature acknowledges inferiority to the superior creator. Servant, master, maid, mistress. And what word is repeated four times in just two verses. Eyes, verse one. Eyes, verse two. Eyes, verse three. Eyes, verse four. That's important. By virtue of repetition, we are to look 
with our eyes to why eyes is mentioned so frequently. Eyes look, eyes perceive. In verse 2, what are the eyes looking toward? The hand. And so, not only is there humility based off the status of the relationship, but there is an element of dependence because the servant maid is looking to the hand in reliance on someone else. So we see humility and we see dependence. And the reason why the eyes are looking to the hand of their master is because there is a sense also of expectation. That the hand that I look to will also be the hand that cares for me. And so this illustration is showing how it is that the people of God ought to look to their sovereign creator. As servants, as maidservants, we look to our sovereign king in humble dependence and expectation that the hand of God will care for us. Also make another observation. There has been a shift in pronouns. In verse 1, to thee I lift my eyes. Verse 2, so our eyes look to the Lord. So what this means is the individual psalmist represents the group. Who is the group? It is the community of God. It is the community of the faithful. Not only is this something that the psalmist does, but this is something the community of God does. This is something we do. As the people of God, we also look to our sovereign creator in humble dependence with expectation that his hand is here to help. I have to brag on our children's ministry, the CLC, right over here to your left. My daughter, about a year ago when she was about two years old, I heard her in her high chair alone in the kitchen uh, singing a song. And I said, I have to record this. So I pull out my phone and I'm beginning to record. And as I round the corner, her back is to me and she's looking out the window and she has her little hand up and her little finger up and she's just singing the song. Do not fear for I am with you. You are my God. And this is a song that our children's ministry leaders teach our children at two years old. And that rings so true for me because even at this moment, that song is taken from Isaiah 41.10, which is a verse that is carrying me through even this moment right now. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Notice there's a theme in Scripture that whenever we're feeling anxious, whenever the world seems chaotic around us, we don't anxiously look around us, but we instinctively, verse 1, lift our eyes to God who will uphold us with his righteous right hand. And so this is point number two for how it is we look to our sovereign creator in humble dependence and expectation for his hand to act on our behalf. Do you believe that? No. Do you believe that? <laughs> well, 
You will by the end of the service, I promise. I'm gonna prophesy right now that everybody in this church is gonna believe as the psalmist does. And trust me, I'm so preaching to myself right now. I'm so preaching to myself. that even as I stand up here this morning, that I am depending on God to act on my behalf. And so as the people of God, as the, psalm, as the psalmist does, and as the church of the living God look to their sovereign creator, ruler of the universe, we do so as his servants and as his maidservants, humbly dependent upon him. For he gives us life and he sustains us with every breath. Everything we have, we owe to him. And so we look to him even in this moment, regardless of what's going outside, on outside, God, we look to your hand to help us. And so that is how it is we look to God. But what is it we specifically need God to do? How is it we specifically need him to help us? Well, notice at the end of verse two and at the beginning of verse three, there is a word mentioned three times. Gracious, gracious, gracious. And it's directed toward who? Gracious to us, gracious to us, gracious to us. It's mentioned three times. This is the prayer of the psalmist. And in context, as we will see, grace refers to God's favorable intervention in an unfavorable situation. And the reason why, church, is because God's grace, whatever the need is, Whatever the situation is, whatever mountain stands before you, God's grace is enough to take care of it. And this is their expectation. Be gracious to us, be gracious to us, as I am a servant of God, humbly looking to the hand of my creator, because I know he has been gracious in the past, he will be gracious in the present, and he will be gracious in the future. And this is because God primarily relates to his people from the place of grace. God relates to us from the headquarters of grace. This is something that we're going through in my young adults group, which if you haven't heard of it and you're in your 20s and 30s, here's my shameless plug. Come to young adults at 9 a.m. in the fellowship hall and we're going through some systematic theology and we just finished this idea of God's grace and how God relates to us from this place. If you think about the White House as a way of illustration, presidents, they come and go. Administrations, they come and go. Cabinets are always changing. Parties, they come and go. Policies, they change. But one thing that does not change regardless of who is in office, regardless of the party, regardless of the administration in the cabinet, are the headquarters of the President of the United States. The President always operates from the White House, no matter what. And one thing that never changes is how God relates to his covenant people. God always relates to his people from the headquarters of grace. And that should just cause you, Christian, to, huh. you mean to tell me that whatever God is doing in my life 
is from a place of grace, yes. What about when God disciplines me? Yes. As a father disciplines his child, so God disciplines the children whom he loves by adoption in Christ. It's Hebrews chapter 12. What about in my trials? You mean to tell me that in my trials and hardships, God is still operating from a place of grace? Yes, he is. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Yes, even in your trials, God is operating in your life from a place of grace because he loves you too much to leave you like you are. And it's not because you're so darn lovable, all right? It's because it's who he is by nature. It is his person to relate to his covenant people by grace through faith in Christ. And so... If you recall that marvelous chapter in Hebrews 4, where we're told to hold fast our confession because Jesus Christ has passed through the heavens, heavens, Psalm 123, both plural. We're told that he is our great high priest. He is the mediator between us and the Father. And what is true of Christ is true of us in his personhood. And then we're told in the very last verse in chapter 4, therefore let us draw near to God, specifically with confidence to the throne. There it is again. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of what? Grace. God's headquarters. The place of his operation. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. God is relating to you this morning by grace. That's what he's doing. Have you ever met anybody named Jonathan? Yo, Natan, God, Yahweh, Natan, gift, God's gift. Have you ever heard of somebody referred to the disciple John's writings as Johannan literature? Yohanan, God's gracious God's gift. You ever met a girl named Hannah? Hanan, grace. You ever met somebody named Anna, a shortened form of God's grace? We don't even realize it, but God's grace permeates even how we name our children. God is relating to us by grace at all times. But let's not disregard something, a clue in the text. Look at the temporal clause at the end of verse two. You see that little magical word there? Until he be gracious to us. Until, it's a temporal element, meaning God's timing for his gracious intervention. God always acts graciously, but he also intervenes into situations by grace. And so we are told we will look to God as his people in humble dependence with the expectation of his gracious, favorable hand. And we're gonna look to him until he be gracious to us. And so it's God's timing. Now faith is trusting in the promises of God. Hope 
It's trusting in the timing, timing of God to bring those promises of God to pass. And so I can prognosticate all I want when I think God should act on my behalf. I can mark my calendars just like you're doing. I can make a schedule. I can create an agenda for how and when I think God needs to move and show his favor for me. But if God's gracious intervention and timing is different than that of my timing, whose timing is right? God's. And so we as the people of God, we expect God to act graciously on our behalf. By faith, we do. But it's only going to be perfectly timed. <laughs> it's only going to be perfectly timed. And so our prayer is for God's gracious intervention. That is the help we need. And so as the people of God, we instinctively look to God, humbly, dependent, with the expectation of his gracious intervention on his time. And then finally, we see the reason as to why the psalmist needs help. Verse 3b, for we are greatly filled with the contempt with greatly filled with contempt, our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Notice the repetition. Greatly filled, mentioned twice. Contempt, mentioned twice. And it's not just filled with contempt. There's a modifier there. Greatly filled with contempt. That word filled is the Hebrew word sova, And it means satiated means full, and it's used, literally, it actually means filled to the throat, meaning no more can go down. And it's the word used of the children of Israel when they grumbled against the Lord and they ate themselves sick with quail. But what is it here that the psalmist is filled with? Contempt, scoffing, not of his own, but of someone else, meaning that the contempt and, of, and scoffing of those outside of him have so consumed him, he's so filled with these things that he turns to God for help. Contempt, meaning that he is despised. Scoffed, he is mocked. And it's by those who are at ease, it's by those in places of position and prominence. They feel no threat. And it's, by those who are labeled the proud, those who look down upon them. And we're told all of those things by those people have filled his soul. It's the word nefesh, and Adam became a living being, nefesh, soul. So we see that this is a deep inner pain. You can go no deeper than this. And the psalmist is feeling it from those who are in opposition around him. It's a deep affliction. Now, question. Here is your quiz. Why is this happening to them? Now, I don't really expect you to answer that one aloud. The reason why this is happening to them is because this is a psalm of ascents. And the psalm of ascents are about the people of God being with God by being faithful with God, faithful to God 
with the faithful love of God. In other words, the reason why they are experiencing opposition is because they are faithful to God on their pilgrimage to be with God. That's it. That's it. How do you respond when people despise you because of your faith, mock you because of your faith? I'll tell you a story of how I once responded. One time when I didn't want to run a red light like Tom, he almost killed me once. I was stopped at the yellow light and the car behind me thought I should have ran the light and he honked his horn. Now, in Texas, honking your horn is a form of opposition. It's straight up spiritual warfare. And me responding with an infantile response, I honk my horn back. But this time I upped the ante. I gave him, I gave him the hand, not the finger, I gave him the hand. All right, honk. He gives me the hand back. And my inner white trash came out. <laughs> and I put it in park. I got out of the car. True story. I said, come on. And he looks at me and he smiles and he pulls out his phone, takes a picture of my face, takes a picture of my license plate. I said, oh, touche. <laughs> and I get back in and I drive off. Now the kicker, I was ordained a pastor two weeks before that. <laughs> How should I have responded? Like Christ. There's a wonderful passage in 1 Peter. And while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. How should I have responded instinctively? Like the psalmist, like all the people of God, with prayer. First thing I should have done. Psalm 123 is a facet of Christ's character. He perfectly fulfilled the will of God in every arena of life. And one of the facets of Christ-like character is training ourselves to instinctively turn to God in prayer, regardless of the opposition. That passage in 1 Peter begins with, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. How do we respond when we face opposition? Well, the first thing we do is respond like Christ. And that is by prayer, according to Psalm 123. Let me read to you a quote by Luther. He places, he, the psalmist, places over against each other the inhabitants of heaven, God, and the inhabitants of the earth, the opposers, and reminds himself, though the world be high and though the world be powerful, God is still higher. And then he asks this question. What should you do then when the world despises and insults you? All right. We're doing a retake on the quiz. 
How should we respond? Like Christ, verse 1, to lift our eyes, O thou who art enthroned in the heavens. Our instinctive reaction in all opposition is first to pray. That is step one. And so let's put all this together. The psalmist, we're told, instinctively lifts his eyes to God in prayer. It's the first thing mentioned about him. It's this first action is to lift his gaze to the one who sits enthroned in the heavens. And he does this when facing opposition. And the way he looks to God is through humble dependence with the expectation of God's gracious intervention. God will act graciously toward his people because that's how he relates to us. But it's going to be his timing. And it's only going to be perfect. The people of God face opposition for simply being the people of God. Always have. And we respond by instinctively training ourselves to look to God first in prayer. So when you face opposition, how should you instinctively respond? Friend in seminary told me about the first job he got out of college was out on this tree farm where he and his wife lived in this little house, little ranch house, way out in the middle of nowhere. And the first week on the job, he hopped on the four-wheeler and he went exploring the property and he went beyond the place that he was warned about to not go. And instead of turning around, he took the four-wheeler deeper and deeper and deeper into the thick of the woods, eventually to where he couldn't go out backward, he had to keep going forward. And eventually he found himself in a slough up to his waist in mud and the four-wheeler was stuck and there was no way of getting it out and he just got this job and he was warned not to go there. And so he crestfallen, gets off the four-wheeler, trudges through the mud, goes back to the house, his wife sees him. She says, what's wrong? He says, honey, we might as well pack our bags. I, I got the four-wheeler stuck by going to the place I shouldn't have gone. She goes, well, have you prayed? Honey, I, I don't think you understand. The four-wheeler is stuck. There's no way we can get it out. Well, have you prayed? We, God would need to drop a road out of heaven for that. Well, have you prayed? God can make a road. He opens the door to one of the neighboring ranchers and he's asking to use a tool that he that he knows this other, that's at this other ranch house to fix his bulldozer, which he so happened to drive to his house. <laughs> yeah, you can borrow the tool. Can you make me a road? And I kid you not, he and that guy got on that bulldozer and moved earth, rock, and tree straight to that four-wheeler. Did God drop a road out of heaven? Yes, he did. But the point is, how did she instinctively respond? By prayer. That was her instinctive response. When you are facing opposition, whether it be at work, whether it be in your neighborhood, where it's really sometimes difficult to love your neighbor, when you're facing opposition in the political arena, even at the local level, when your city council seems to be doing things that are totally antagonistic to life, well-being, 
when you are facing opposition in school, in your family, how is it we should instinctively respond? What should you do then when the world despises and insults you? I know what the word says. And we should instinctively lift our eyes to the one who is enthroned in the heavens, the sovereign ruler of all creation, the monarch of monarchs, the highest one to whom we can turn and appeal. If you've got a problem with somebody in the city council, if you've got a problem with somebody in the political arena, if you've got a problem with somebody in the White House, go to their boss, the sovereign ruler of all creation. How we respond to opposition is key. And the way we respond is by lifting our eyes in humble dependence with the expectation that God will graciously intervene in our unfavorable situation. Because he relates to you and he relates to me by grace, always and forever. Amen? As we close this morning, I, I want to remind us that the application is simply this. Pray first before you take any action. And the way that we pray is to humbly go before God, dependent on his might and his power, expecting his gracious hand to respond and to act to our benefit. That's who God is. And so may we all train ourselves that way. So please join me in prayer as I pray that the Spirit would do his ministry of applying God's word to the people of God so that we may be conformed to the image of God's Son. And also I ask that you would prepare your hearts to celebrate communion as a local church this morning, okay? Father in heaven, we are so thankful that when we are told to pray by our king, we are told our father who art in heaven, that you are the majestic one true God who reigns supreme. And though we look to our left and to our right and we see opposition and we wonder how is this working all out for the good, we by faith know it is. Faith is not a lack of certainty, it's the exact opposite. It's certainty in the promises and the word of God. And so we trust you this morning, help our unbelief. Train us by your spirit to lift our eyes first to God when we face opposition. And may your spirit lead our action as we seek to follow in the footsteps of our King. God, help us, train us to pray and depend humbly to you with the expectation of your favor toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.